This is an ABC podcast. Okay, Steph, politics quiz. How many children did the first woman to be elected to the House of Representatives, Enid Lyons, have? Too many. Eleven. (laughs) Eleven. Yeah, she did. How much does that freak you out? It freaks me out a lot. You'd be very tired. They were just the surviving ones. She gave birth to more. Really? But there were 11 surviving children when That's she... That's too much to be in Parliament. You I know. You have 11 kids at home. To be honest, she probably went to Parliament for a bit of a rest. <laughs> <laughs> but ever since Enid, mother of many, arrived in the Parliament, female politicians have faced heaps of questions about kids. Do they want them? Will they have them? Are they doing a good enough job of looking after them? Lots of questions. So today we're going to talk about being a real woman. Real. A real woman. Do you think you can be a real woman (laughs) without having children? I don't know. Because, I'm asking this because, like, this question of motherhood has been like a real, like, such a really weird... Hot button issue. For women in politics for a long time. And here's why, like, back in the suffragist days when women were first trying to get the vote, one of the, like, big arguments about women having the vote or being involved in politics was that children would be neglected. Yeah. You know, that women's job is to look after the home Mm -hmm. and if women started getting, you know, um, involved in stuff like politics, that these children would go unfed, the, you know, marriages would be (sighs) destroyed, the family would be decimated. And, like, you know, in this country... This stuff is still really recent. Like up until 1966, it was the law of the federal commonwealth that female public servants, if they got married, had to quit their jobs. Oh, my God. That's so recent. So right? Recent. 1966 is mm. when we got rid of that. Like it's so recent. Like my yeah. mother-in-law was subject to this treatment. Like yeah. because – and the idea was that, well, if you were going to have a family, then you shouldn't have a job too. This is a really interesting topic because I am really clucky at the moment, but I'm also really hitting my stride in my career. Right. And this is like the hardest, this is a question I ask myself constantly is yeah. I always had this dream when I was young that I wanted to have kids young and yeah. I, I changed it to, I want to have kids before I'm 30. Right. But it's getting bloody close now. Right. So the question of like juggling the responsibilities of a family with work is like Mm. still this sort of question or equation that kind of weirdly seems to apply to women more than men Mm. um, or women kind of automatically tangled with it, whereas with men... um, And we're proud of men if they have a family. Like we go, well done. Good on you. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, like, you know, men have been sort of breeding in the parliament and in the cabinet for, like, time immemorial and no one ever cares or says, oh, I wonder where, where's the baby? Who's looking after the baby? Yeah, yeah. But there were also some women who didn't have children, either as like a, as a choice or because it just didn't happen. But those women end up facing all these weird questions when they get to Parliament about, well, you know, do you really understand, you know, Are there families? That you're missing out on. Right. Why have you chosen career? And Right. Yeah. And so like, For my money, like, the moment at which this question, like, really crystallised in Australian politics was when the Liberal Senator Bill Heffernan 
said of Julia Gillard, who then was a, a senior Labor figure, not yet Prime Minister, mm. that she was, quote, deliberately barren. I remember being told by my media advisor that, you know, Bill Heffernan had called me deliberately barren. It was like, oh, yeah, whatever. Um, and, you know, Bill Heffernan had a very particular political reputation as a sort of maverick that would um, go out and say things. And um, I guess there's a worthwhile political debate about how maverick was he as opposed to uh, the person who was asked to carry some of the out there lines uh, and then you know others at the political leadership level could say afterwards oh that's just Bill Um, but one of those characters that would say quite controversial things and I remember I was in the middle of a busy day and you know Bill Heffernan said this yeah whatever Uh, And I think I got on a plane and was quite surprised by the time I got off that it was as huge as it was. Do you feel like it surfaced something subterranean, that particular exchange, and allowed it to be dealt with in a way? I, with the benefit of hindsight, if it hadn't been the Bill Heffernan-inspired moment, I suspect there still would have been a moment in my career when... Uh, not having children would have been used and I would have had to have responded. So uh, any way you cut it, I suspect this was going to be an issue at some point. And having looked at the things that have happened to other women, uh, what's particularly in my mind is uh, when I spoke to Theresa May about her experiences in politics. She doesn't have children. Um, It's well known that she and her husband would very much liked to have had children, but it simply wasn't possible for them. Mm. And so she says generally that the British media have been quite respectful about Mm. that. Um, And given the tabloid culture in the British media, that's a pretty big thing to say. It's... Oh. Uh, no, it's so recent too. You look back and you think, oh my God, we'd kind of have to put women through these hoops and make them answer questions that necessarily anybody's business weird question Mm -hmm. then and i am bad for asking this question go for it you have children yes i have three children yeah yeah did you feel pressure did you make a decision in your mind to hit the stage in your career before you had kids or was it just it happened when it happened and it happened as it happened do you know what like my partner may disagree with my recollection but um, so I love working, like I love my job mm. and my partner and I had been together for like a long time, you know, and he basically said, and I, I think when I thought about ch- having children, I kind of kept thinking about all the things that I would lose or that I wouldn't be able mm. to do. And he eventually just sort of said, listen, I really want to have kids. We're going to have to like, do. are we going to do this or not? And I'm like, oh, all right then. And then mm. like I... Absolutely never for one second regretted. In fact, I wanted to have more kids straight away. So, but, like, I changed the way that I work too. Like, and I have a job where I could change the way that I work and I think that my career would have been super different if I didn't have kids. Yeah. But I also think that the disruption of having kids and taking a bit of time out and then thinking, oh, what do I want to do when I go back to work has actually made me do way more interesting things and also made me care a bit less about taking risks and like, oh, I'm going to do this now, even if people think it's ridiculous. I'm yeah. just going to give it a shot. So, yeah, but I think in politics, it's... Well, everything seems like a political move, doesn't it? That's true. And also the reality of life in politics is, you know, you kind of travel away from your home. So, like, if you want to have a family while you're serving in politics, mm. you really need 
a spouse, like if you're a woman, you need a spouse who's going to perform for you the same role as female spouses have done for male politicians for a long time. And that's difficult because the recruitment for male spouses who are happy to take over all of the home domestic responsibilities is different from the market of female spouses for male politicians who have historically done that. I know this isn't strictly on the topic of, of politics, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, I recently came out of a relationship which mm. was um, kind of built on that principle. Right. Yeah. Um, he didn't work and he didn't want to work, mm. but I am a workaholic. I love work. Mm. You know, I love being challenged. I have to have five things on the go at once, otherwise <laughs> I don't feel mm. like I'm doing enough. Mm. Um, and he was like, well... I want to be the stay-at-home dad. You know, mm. I think that it worked for me. And he was a lot older than me and mm. it just kind of seemed like it would work. But actually the reality of that was that I think he felt quite emasculated right. by the reality of it. And so, you know, in theory it was what we both wanted, but in practice it required, I think, from his end, a lot more justification of his being and of his oh, That's so interesting. Because I think that, yeah. that is one of the real complications For women in politics, it's not just complicated for them. It's not just them that's doing something that's sort of a bit outside the box. It's also if they have a male partner, that's a different, like being the male spouse of a politician is different from being the female spouse of a politician. I mean, you can ask everybody from Dennis Thatcher onwards. Like there's a certain brand of kind of like, oh, you're a handbag sort of thing that is kind of... It is, it's an affront to a male identity in a way that it's not to a female identity. And lots of blokes are actually fine with it, but it's, it's, it's an additional layer. And yes, I think absolutely. Um, there's this. It makes men very intimidated by women, I think, as well. We're in an interesting space. Sorry, you said you were really young when you got with your partner, right? Yeah. So he got to see your success. Was he quite successful himself? Yeah. I mean, he's um, well, he did actually become a lawyer, unlike me. So yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, kind of, I get to see what life is like as a lawyer. So it's like that's different to bringing somebody into Like I'm single now at 28 and my career is about to hit somewhere. You know, like all of that work, you know. Yeah, paying I think, off. Yeah, I think it's starting to pay off now. But imagine asking somebody to join the journey now. You know, and and I think that that times ten is the situation for for politicians. It is such a public job, and and then if you had decided that was the path you're taking, mm. that would be the hardest decision to bring a kid into that. Oh my gosh, that is that is completely true. And I think, you know, there is this um, this ancient assumption that your average politician is a bloke with a wife mm. at home and some kids that he doesn't see very often, yeah. that any diversion from that is just sort of a, like a grounds for suspicion, whether it's, you know, a woman without kids or a woman with kids. And you can express itself in the most symbolic and indirect of ways. Like, remember back when um, Julia Gillard got, like, there was all this discussion about a photograph that she had taken where she was in her kitchen and her kitchen was really bare and she was there was an empty bowl next to her and there was this massive, like, I mean, I'll get her to tell the story. I've got a little grab of it for you, but, like, it was this sort of moment where that photograph became a really powerful symbol of her childlessness. Oh. Oh, oh, all right, take it away, Juliet. Aha, uh-huh, the fruit bowl, the fruit bowl that stopped a nation. Um, 
it isn't necessarily a fruit bowl in the sense that it actually looks best when you can see the design at the base of it. But this image was obviously completely overread and blown up. Um, and I didn't think about it at the time. You know, it was just a photographer, you know, take a seat, we'll get a shot. Um, so I just didn't think through what it would mean to be photographed in a kitchen. Do you still have the bowl? Yes, still have the bowl. Did you ever put anything in it? Uh, it may actually, today as we speak, have some fruit in it. <laughs> I've conceded, I've conceded the case, you know, over all of these years having tried to maintain to people, it's not a fruit bowl, it's just easy to say, OK, fruit. <laughs> Look, surely, like, in the history of, <laughs> of like, Julia Gillard's experience, that must be the weirdest one, like, because there was this, like, why is she in such an empty kitchen and why is there no fruit in just, her bowl. Oh, that just pisses me off. What does that mean? Oh, that's just infuriating, though. Right. I mean, but it, and now I'm annoyed by the question that immediately comes to my head, which is, did she ever say whether she wanted kids? She's I've been asked about this a lot, and she says, I didn't ever really... I'm the sort of person who does one thing full on, mm. and um, I knew that I wanted this career in politics. I wanted to devote myself to it. She said... Mm. I have the greatest admiration of people who do both, but I didn't think that I could do that. So mm. that's what she says, you know. Um, but, like, <laughs> it's just, it reminds me just how careful you have to be about, like, how an image can get interpreted. No, no you shouldn't, a... <laughs> though. Well, it's just... You know what I mean? Because yeah. that, that's, that's a fallacy, do you know what I mean? Like, it's not the responsibility. No. You know, I know that that isn't what you're saying, but, like, that's what sucks is why is it her responsibility to it's okay so it's like the what's reasonably foreseeable right, right. like okay. it's, it's the negligence it's law it's imagine you know. if you foresaw that like but what kind of person would you have to be to be like oh i better just put a few oranges in that bowl exactly in case a couple of complete nut bars ever look at this picture and think is this woman suffering because of her childlessness oh, it's just shocking <laughs> There's another great this story that infuriates me more than any of the other stuff for some reason. Just this idea of your, like, I can't think of a single, well, there is no bigger commitment, a single bigger commitment yeah. or responsibility than a child. And imagine that being questioned every day. Yeah. Well, here's another story for you. This is, this is Natasha Stottespoyer, mm -hmm. who was the youngest woman ever to take a seat in the Senate. She was the Democrats leader. Um, for a while when the Democrats were still around. And she started out in politics without children. And then when she met her husband, got married, had kids while serving in the parliament. And this story is from when she was the Democrats' leader and a single image captured during a campaign event completely kicked off this narrative about her. Here she goes. I was campaigning in Brisbane with my colleague, Senator Andrew Bartlett. He'd just had a baby, like newborn baby, and he'd brought Lilith to come and meet me. And it was glorious. She was exquisite, beautiful. And we had those moments that politicians can only dream about, you know, 10 minutes of just beautiful photography with me and this lovely baby, not crying, you know, politicians' babies, kissing, the whole thing. And for a couple of seconds... I turned to the camera and to Andrew and everyone said, oh, she's so tiny, I'd be terrified of dropping her. And I did this face of horror at the thought of dropping this baby. And, of course, that's oh, the camera. Brilliant, brilliant photographer. That's what he captured. But I didn't realise this. So 
we all celebrated that evening because it was just, um, it was a lovely day. And I woke up the next day to this photograph of me looking horrified <laughs> at, this, um, at this beautiful baby. Um, Brilliant photograph. Uh, I think it was reprinted nine times during the election campaign in The Australian, um, and it became emblematic. So one columnist said that this was absolutely typical of me and my generation. Natasha hates children. Ugh, that, that is infuriating. And then she appeared at the press club later in that campaign and somebody actually asked her, what have you got against children? <laughs> Yeah. But then, see, this is where things get interesting because then she had children. Like mm. she had a baby while she was serving as a senator. And she says that the second she had a baby, the criticism swung around to like, why are you neglecting that baby by coming to work, right? <sighs> and Yuck. that's sort of the other side of the double standard. And I interviewed Ros Kelly, who was like a minister in the Hawke government, and she was the first woman to give birth as a federal MP, right? Yeah. She was the member for Canberra, and she used to do what she called the Kelly Milk Run, which is like she would, <laughs> like, run home from the cabinet <laughs> or whatever and feed the baby and then back in again. She lived in Canberra, so it was kind of like yeah. at least a bit more feasible. But she took something like two days off, if that, to give birth. She was – nobody else had done it before, and so she didn't want to be accused of slacking off. Like, she wanted to – keep her job. She drove herself absolutely into the ground. She was loudly criticised for coming back to work and like, this is child abuse and all this sort of stuff. It's like full on. But as a result, she kind of worked herself into an absolute, absolute frenzy. And I want to play you something which is, I don't know, it's, it's so hectic that I love this little story from her. And it's about what happened after the birth of her second child because she went and had another one <laughs> to follow up. Oh, my God. Here she goes. Ben was born on the 4th of November and I remember laying a wreath on the 11th, holding my stomach in while I was laying the wreath at the cenotaph. And, of course, also when Ben was, uh, I think he was only nine days old, we had the opening of the election campaign in Sydney. So I had to pick the baby up and off we go to the campaign. Then we did a whole campaign so by then, I'd been working flat out, and it was Christmas Day. And, of course, I had my usual way, so I can manage all this. So I invited the Keatings around for Christmas lunch. <laughs> and why I did this, I do not know. So anyway, I'm there, and Christmas morning, I get up to go to Mass. I just started vomiting. I could not stop. And what had happened, obviously, my body had just said, enough is enough. I pushed myself so much that... When I stopped, I just got, I just couldn't stop being sick. So I still remember this scene of Paul and Anita coming over with their three kids, my two babies, and David trying to cook this turkey. <laughs> oh, it was ridiculous. And I could do nothing except vomit. I just, I just think every now and again when I'm having a busy day, I just think at least I'm not trying to cook turkey for Paul Keating whilst chucking up everywhere. <laughs> oh, that's just... <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> but, like, they didn't have rules. Like, they didn't have mm. a kind of way to be, like those early women. There wasn't a childcare centre in the parliament. Like, Is there now? 
Yeah, there is. But Good. you know where the childcare centre is now? Ages away. It's where the old bar was. Like they've really, yeah. And because Parliament House was built with a bar, but not with a childcare facility, and it took it took years of campaigning, years of women in the Parliament campaigning. You know, it's not the childcare centre is not just for MPs. Yeah, like it's for staffers and people who work in the building and journalists use it too. But like, it's kind of obvious now that it's there but at the time it wasn't and so they found these amazing ways of coping and even like you know how I told you sound like an amazing way to cope to be honest to throw up no actually (laughs) you're quite right it was a debacle (laughs) it was amazing those days were so wonderful but like um you know Susan Ryan, who I was telling you about before. She was the first. Um, she was the you know only woman in the Hawke cabinet for years yeah. and years, and she was you know the one who introduced and got through Parliament the Sex Discrimination Act. She's an amazing, amazing woman. And mm. look, very sadly, while we were making this series, I was talking to Susan, mm. and she died very suddenly um, and shockingly. Um, and it was four days before we were supposed to be interviewing her for the series. Mm. Um, but I did do a, um, like, just I, for some reason I recorded one of the conversations that I had with her. Mm. And she has, I think, possibly the greatest kind of um, ad hoc babysitting arrangement story that I can remember anyone telling me. And that is in 1975, which is when Susan ran for the Senate. She was also from the ACT and she was the first woman to represent the ACT in the federal parliament. And that was 1975 was the year that the Whitlam dismissal happened, right? So, like, the Ah. Labor Party is in complete disarray because there's been this huge, like, constitutional crisis. Mm, Everything is going on. And Susan Ryan's like, well, I'm quite optimistic about Labor. I'm very excited about joining the Parliament. And there's all these men just going, oh, we're screwed. Anyway... So she she was the first woman and she was like, I'm a feminist. And they're like, don't talk to, about that too much on the campaign, love. But yeah. she also then had to campaign. 1975, she's got two little kids. She's a single mother. So, is this one that you said had 11 kids? No, no, no. This is That was a much earlier woman. This uh, one yeah. has two. And she's a single mum, though, in the 70s. Wow. And she's trying to campaign. And so... What happened at the time? I can't was, believe I don't know more about her. Why aren't we talking about her? We're talking life, about her now. I know. Which she is wasn't good. ever a big self, big noter, actually, Susan Ryan. So I like to talk about her a lot because she's kind of like an amazing woman. And yeah. anyway, 1975, there she is facing a campaign um, and she's got these two little kids. And because of the sort of crisis, I'm told that Jermaine Greer kind of was outraged by what had happened to the Whitlam government and said, what do you need me to do to help with the campaign, comrades? And they're like, would you mind looking after Susan Ryan's kids? <laughs> so I'm, I am not joking. In the 1975 campaign, Susan Ryan's children were babysat by Jermaine Greer and here she is. Apologies for the sound quality because it's just like a phone conversation that yeah. I recorded. But this gives you an idea of how funny and awesome Susan Ryan is. Here she goes. I love so much that Jermaine Greer was your babysitter during that campaign. It makes me <laughs> scream with laughter. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, well, you know, networks. Was she much of a yeah. babysitter, though? <laughs> oh, she told... Well, when I came back... I'd spent a day in Griffith trying to support Al Grasby and I came back on the Greyhound bus, you know, and got to my house and there was sort of um, warfare between 
Jermaine and my daughter Justine because Jermaine had been trying to teach Justine how to make a cake <laughs> and there had been disagreement. I mean, I never tried to tell Justine how to make a cake. I never had made cakes, but Jermaine thought this is something she'd do and it, it didn't work out. But anyway, <laughs> apart from that... Well, certainly, um, certainly given Justine an excellent anecdote to be going on with in life. Oh, <laughs> that story. Oh, my mm. gosh. Uh, yeah, I don't think Jermaine was much of a, a baker either, but felt it was something that she really had to do with those which, poor children. Which is <laughs> odd, considering her I know. beliefs. I know. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> there you go. It just goes to show the completely weird... Ways that women kind of adopted to get through this process without formal support, really. It's fascinating. Ah, absolutely fascinating. Wasn't there, there were, one thing that I remember was that big controversy about the breastfeeding and... Oh, mm. yeah. Well, you know, you've only been able to, you've only been allowed to breastfeed in Parliament House, you know, in the chamber for not very long and in fact um, I'm not surprised by that somehow though that's still something that is so controversial for some reason right. even breastfeeding in public and stuff right oh yeah no there's definitely a, a weird sort of taboo element to it but like in the parliament it was actually more of an issue of in the parliament you're not supposed to step onto the floor of the parliament unless you're an elected representative right oh. and and right, the baby. that's the rule. Like, really? So that's... And they call it stranger in the house, right? Like, and that's a no thing. You can't have a stranger in the house. You have to be elected or, you know, undertaking a formal mm. role like a clerk or Hansard or whatever. And so um, Sarah Hanson-Young, when she was elected to the Senate for the Greens, had a little baby. Yeah. She was having to come in and out of the chamber to do votes and stuff like that when her daughter was quite little. And she had to run into the chamber to vote and she brought her baby who just peacefully sat on her lap and she was asked to remove the child because there was a stranger in the house. Oh and my. so they had to take the baby off her and the baby's just crying and, like, it was completely a debacle. And and that's sort of one of the things that triggered, I think, a change mm. in that regulation. And other women, including um, Larissa Waters, who's um, also a Green Senator colleague, um, have now, you know, there's was I think after that a recognition that that needed to change and so that has changed. You can take your babies into the house and to be honest, there is actually now a member of the House of Reps, a woman called Annika Wells, who has twins that she gave birth to in the last year. Oh, my God. And they both hang out with her. Yeah, and sometimes I've seen them both on the floor of the parliament. So, you know, I know, right? So a lot of stuff has changed. A lot of stuff has changed. And since the Ros days where... She didn't have anyone to look to and she didn't have anyone to... So she worked herself into the ground because she didn't want to be thought a slacker, you know? Yeah, that more than anything else infuriates me. It really, really really does because it's, you know, you know what it is? It's the the entitlement. It's the Mm -hmm. lack of gratitude. It's the, you know, like if you boil it down, right, humanity, we we need mums, like... We need people having children and so to treat them as less than human for doing that is disgusting. But then to also believe that the only reason that we exist is to have children. You know what I mean? Like it's an absolutely lose-lose situation Mm -hmm. and I don't know how you even begin to grapple with it because it's so, again, it's so ingrained, It's, it's insidious, it's that whole thing of 
you know, it's the argument that comes with the fact that women have lower wages. Oh, well, you also take time out for children, you know, mm. all of that sort of thing. And it's this issue that I think is really hard to get around as a woman um, Yep. from any angle. And then it's elevated in politics and it just... But it is changing. Nuts. It is changing. So, yeah. like, you would never have seen a kid anywhere in Parliament House, like, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And now there's not only kids in there, but there's also, like male partners who are there, like, who've taken time out from work or who are in, at home, and that is becoming a more normal thing too. And yep. the more of that you see, the more available mm. that option is for people who want to give that a go. And, like, that, to me, I think about Roz and throwing up with the turkey and whatever, and I think I wish that she at that time had been able to look down into the future and see... Mm the change that she was beginning to bring about, you know. And I know that now she sees these women having babies in Parliament thinking and that is genuinely, like, thrilled that it is easier for them, I think, than it was for her. And that's what it's all about, right? Change, evolution, making things a tiny bit easier for the person who comes after you whilst also saving your great stories about the time that Jermaine Greer babysat your children. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Here's my my big thing. Somebody said the future is dot, 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 question mark to me. Mm -hmm. My answer was shades of grey. And to me that's progress, right? Let's move away from black and white. Because black and white is stifling. Right? Yeah. Because you've got to be one or the other and then you spend your life feeling maybe... Am I doing a good job of this or do I belong over there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and shades of grey lets us have twins in the... In the... <laughs> yeah, she's looking pretty grey in the face every time I see her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sucks to be you. <laughs> hey, thank you. It's been no, so you. lovely to catch up with you again. Oh, you too. You're just the best, Grabs. Oh, <laughs> thanks again. <laughs> Next time. Annabelle. Steph. I don't know how you feel about plugging stuff. Oh, I feel cautiously okay. Well... Just so that you don't have to direct people to go and look at your face on a screen, <laughs> let me tell them, go and watch the show because it's got Annabelle Crab in it. She's a crab. It's got heaps of great women in it. Misrepresented, now that you mention it, you can watch it all on iView right now. All of it. All of it. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.